Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today my guest will be World War II veteran Ted Bell, state newspaper reporter Jeff Wilkinson, and director Wade Sellers with Coal Powered Filmworks. We're going to talk to Ted Bell about his experiences in the Battle of Okinawa and the upcoming Man in the Moment special on ETV. The story of Ted Bell is a story of valor and courage under fire for which this modest, self-effacing gentleman was awarded the country's second highest medal for valor, the Distinguished Service Cross. I'll have that conversation, but first, your NPR news break. With me in the SCANA studio today are World War II veteran Ted Bell, newspaperman Jeff Wilkinson with the state newspaper and also with the South Carolinians in World War II Project, and Wade Sellers, who is director with Coal Powered Filmworks. And Ted Bell is going to be featured on an upcoming ETV special in the Man in the Moment series, which is, Jeff, an overall part of South Carolinians in World War II. Uh, that's correct. We've spent the last four years interviewing World War II veterans. We've interviewed over 160 now. And we have two series going. One's called South Carolinians in World War II, which is a compilation of the memories of uh, many World War II veterans. And then the Man and Moment series is a series of uh, 30-minute documentaries that focuses on individual World War II soldiers. And today we're going to be focusing on Ted Bell, who was a 1942 graduate of the Citadel and who was a company commander on Okinawa, which was the last battle of the Pacific. Mr. Bell, let's talk a little bit about you. You went to the Citadel, a member of the great class of 1942, but you were a Georgia boy, weren't you? I was. I was from Atlanta, Georgia, and I was taking Senator Russell's exam for West Point, and I decided to go to the Citadel for one year to wait to see if I could make his appointment to West Point. And taking his exams, he went right down the line, and I could never be number one, two, or three. So after my freshman year at the Citadel, I wouldn't have gone anywhere anyway. Mr. Russell is Senator Russell of Georgia. Each member of Congress has an appointment to West Point. Who was your roommate there at the Citadel? Major General James Grimsley. We roomed together the whole time we were there. He was a country boy from Florence, South Carolina, and I figured he needs some training, so <laughs> I helped him out that way. And, of course, he would also, he would end up being president of your alma mater. He ended up 10 years as president of the Citadel, right. Yeah. And some other members of that class of 42, two governors, John West and Fritz Hollings, and, of course, Senator Holl- he became U.S. Senator Hollings. Correct, right. And you had some other famous members of that great Citadel class of 42. Alba Chapman, who was CEO of Knight Ritter newspaper down in Miami. Mm-hmm. He was our cadet colonel. He was our top cadet and a great fellow. Uh, he's passed on now, as has most all my class. Not many of us left. And you are a spry, what, 93? I'm 93, right. Well, right. you are spry because I, wa- I saw you walk down the hall. Yeah, well, <laughs> every day that passes and I'm still here, I feel lucky. Well, 1942, you're at the Citadel. You actually graduate before you go into the service, right? We graduated at Reserve Second Lieutenants, right. And after the war, they had a competition, and I made regular Army after the war. And did you stay a full military career, 30 years? 30 years, right. How did you end up in Columbia? Well, it's very close to my old alma mater, plus the fact that I commanded a brigade at Fort Jackson, and we got very used to Columbia. We liked Columbia. And when I was at the Citadel, these South Carolina boys, if they went to the Columbia, they were going to paradise. <laughs> so I, I sort of took it from there. And uh, we've enjoyed it tremendously. It's we can get down to the Citadel, we can get to the beach, we can get to the mountains, and we just like it here. All right, so we've, we've got you graduating from the Citadel, and let's talk about your career in the service, your experiences between graduating in June of 42 and Okinawa, April 1945. You've got three years in there. Three years. <laughs> well, General Grimsley and I, because I had a 
an uncle at Fort McPherson making assignments, asked me where I wanted to go for my first assignment, and I said to Fort Benning to the basic officer's course. Mm -hmm. And I said, I want to take uh, General Grimsley, Lieutenant Grimsley with me. The fourth day of June, we had just graduated. We went to the basic course at Fort Benning. Mm -hmm. After we finished the course, we had the choice of units to be assigned to. The 77th Division had been activated at Fort Jackson, which is close to home. So Ellick and I both chose the 77th Division. And we went in the same battalion. Very seldom do you have roommates to go through an entire war together, but we did exactly that. And the 77th was primarily a New York division, was it not? New York division, right. Uh, we had a mostly southern officers. We had a language problem of uh, uh, communicating <laughs> with these cab drivers and others from the streets of New York, but we made it all right. Turned out, age-wise, the 77th, in being reactivated at, in New York, was uh, had the oldest soldiers of any division that I know of, including Murder Incorporated. They were part of our division too. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> they ran the crap games on the ships going over. <laughs> <laughs> and so, when you say Murder Incorporated, you're saying some of the the fellows in the mafia were still practicing their trade in the in they uniform. They were in, in the service. That's right. You're training here at Fort Jackson, and then you're shipped out to the Far East Twin. Well, we went on maneuvers all over Louisiana, and uh, then we went to the East Coast, West Virginia, for mountain training, amphibious training, up and down to go to Europe. Well, it turned out that we were turned around later, taken to the Pacific and sent to the Pacific instead of Europe. Uh, we went to Hawaii, and we did some more training there. Then after that, we launched our first combat operation, which was Cebu. And uh, then we went to Leyte. And then we went from Leyte to Iashima, a little island off of Okinawa, which my regiment went in to capture for artillery positions for the invasion of Okinawa, which was going to take place a week later. We went in a week ahead in Iashima. And that's where I saw Ernie Pyle in the back of a Jeep and heard the shots that got him when the Jeep went on down the trail. Oh. Some of our younger listeners might not remember or know who Ernie Pyle was. He was a great journalist in, in World War II. He, he was a journalist who attached himself to an infantry unit all over Europe. He didn't sit back and get the dispatches. He went with infantry units. And when he came to the Pacific, when the war ended in Europe, he joined the 77th Division, and he was doing the same thing. He had attached himself to an infantry unit, and he wrote the story from the standpoint of the G.I. He lived with them. And the, and the G.I.s loved him. Exactly. Okay. He, he was a, a real hero to them. Okay. Now, Jeff, didn't you have that experience in contemporary warfare? Were not you embedded either in Iraq or Afghanistan? I went to Iraq, yes, and I wasn't embedded with a military unit. I, I was called unilateral, which means essentially you get a car and a couple of friends and you s sneak into Iraq and drive around and cover the things that the uh, folks that aren't embedded cover. I'm not saying that you are Ernie Pyle, but in terms of your fascination and appreciation of the men and women in uniform, I think that's a pretty fair comparison. I like the personal stories. I don't like the dispatches either. <laughs> you like the personal stories. Now, Wade, you've been associated with this project from the very beginning, right? Yes, just after maybe three or four interviews had been conducted, and then I came on board. Okay. And so you, you and Jeff have been at this now for how many years? Just over three years. Three years. And this particular show that, that's going to air, the two of you and, and Ted Bell went back to Okinawa. Yeah, we did. With the uh, first two man-a-moment shows, we followed veterans back to Holland and Germany and Austria. And then, you know, we had discussed a third show, you know, just in the idea of if we, if the shows just exist as they are, it would be nice to have a third and we should have uh, someone that served in the Pacific. 
and we were kind of looking over everyone we've interviewed and you know we kept talking uh jeff and i kept talking to each other and saying you know we should really ask ted if he wants to go back to japan and so we first approached him i think two years ago after we had interviewed him for the south carolinians in world war ii series and his story um was so you know overwhelming we said well would you like to go back to okinawa and immediately he said, no, I have no interest in going back. I don't, you know, I don't want to do it. And then we interviewed him again for the uh, Man of Moment show on Colonel Charles Murray. And then we asked him again. And he said no. And um, eventually uh, one thing led to another. And Jeff, you know, approached him, I think, a third time or maybe a fourth time. And he said, you know, I might be interested in going. I outflanked him. <laughs> I called his son. I called his son, Teddy, and I said, Teddy, we want to take your dad back to Okinawa. And he goes, really? He lives up in Maryland. And I said, yeah. And so Teddy worked on him. For how long? How long did he work on you, Ted? Well, about about three weeks is all from the time <laughs> you called him. But he was he was so thrilled at the thought of getting back over there with me to see where I had been in Okinawa that he really worked hard on me to get me to go. And I said, without him, I won't go. But they took him along and paid his way. And every time I got ready to move, his arm was sticking out, ready to help me. So he was a great help as far as I'm concerned. Well, Ted, like many World War II veterans, you had not been telling your stories. Did, did Teddy know many of your experiences before you actually got there to Okinawa? Had you talked about them before? No, not really. I One night, I remember distinctly, he and his wife were sitting with me in the den, and he said, we've never heard a word about you and your exploits. How about telling us something about Okinawa? And I started talking for the first time in my life, and I broke down and couldn't go on, and that ended it. That's uh, He never heard a word from then on. But uh, the only thing, when I think of the number of men that I lost up there on the ridge, I get quite emotional. All right, so well... For our listeners, let's set the stage for the for the Battle of Okinawa because in many ways it's gotten lost because right after Okinawa, the atomic bomb is dropped and people seem to skip over the fact that this was actually the first real Japanese territory that Americans had had gone into in the Pacific. The other islands had been Japanese-occupied, but this was actually Japanese territory. And the invasion force for Okinawa was larger than the invasion force at D-Day. And I've just got to give some of these statistics. In April of 1945, the United States Navy assembled an armada of 1,300 ships for the invasion of Okinawa, compared to D-Day, 284 ships. I mean, it's about five times, the literally five times the number of ships, Ted, that was involved with you folks at, at, uh, at Okinawa. 150,000 troops in D-Day 183,000 troops for Okinawa. And the number of supplies involved, 570,000 tons at D-Day versus 750,000 tons at Okinawa. So that tells you the magnitude of what the Army, the Navy, and the Marine Corps were going to face on Okinawa. They already knew, Ted, and I don't know if you had this in your previous battle, but the Japanese basically had already adopted a policy of they were not going to surrender. They were going to fight to the death. And did you did you experience that when you, on the landing to that small island off of Okinawa, did you experience the fact that they, they were no Japanese to surrender when your regiment landed? Later on, not, not that so much. Well, we found some families huddled in caves. They were mostly Okinawa families mm-hmm. huddled in caves, and we tried to talk them out. And sometimes they would put a grenade in their stomach and not come out. Sometimes they would come out, the families, women and children. And uh, I know that if we had invaded, and my division was training to be one of the lead divisions to go into Japan, and we would have had to fight every woman and child in Japan 
in order to progress because they would have all been fighting, every one of them. Okay. Well, you've got this huge invasion force in the spring of 1945, and it actually, they call it Operation Iceberg. I mean, I know how they, 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 they pick names, but here you are in the Pacific, and Iceberg is the name of the operation. Some colonel probably got a medal for that. Ted. I never heard that. You mean the invasion of Japan was iceberg? No, invasion of Okinawa was iceberg. Well, I never heard that, and I was on the invasion. <laughs> <laughs> and it was launched April 1st, which, you know, April Fool's Day, but it also happened to be Easter Sunday that yeah. year. And you were involved in horrific combat from the beginning. You commanded a company of 200 men. All right. And I'd like you to, if you would, take your time and walk through your experiences there on Okinawa because you were assigned a ridge to capture and hold. The ridge was the main battle line of the Japanese forces on Okinawa. They were occupying that ridge, and we were ordered, well, first let me say, we were ordered to move at night, and that's something from the time we hit the war zone, we dug a hole, we got in it at dark, and anything that moved was Japanese, and you shot it. That was our defense against movement at night. We just didn't do it. Well, when I got the order about mid-afternoon that I was to take a night move, slip up onto Ishimi Ridge, which was the main battle line of the Japanese, First of all, the fact that we were going to move at night was scary enough. Mm-hmm. But the idea that we were going to move in cheek to cheek with the main defenses of the Japanese forces was quite worrisome. But our company, my company, of about 200 men, we got the order mid-afternoon, and I was told that my company was the only reserve unit of the 77th Division, and the division commander had ordered this operation. I'm not sure that's so, but that's what I was told. So I got my platoon leaders up on the ridge just almost just before dark and pointed up the ridge where we were going that night at 3 o'clock in the morning, and uh, reinforced by a platoon from another company out of the battalion. And uh, about 3 o'clock in the morning, we formed up single file and moved up through a long sloping ridge, no vegetation, no trees, no forest, just a long sloping ridge up to the barely I could barely see the ridge in in the dark. We had many flares going off, and we had to freeze and stop every time a flare went off. And I I was at the head of the company, and I was just waiting for the first booby trap to go off the first tripwire. And for some reason, we didn't hit a booby trap, we didn't hit a wire, and we didn't hit a Japanese sentinel out in front. And I will never understand this. Uh, Of course, we were single file, so we didn't cover a lot of territory. But as we moved on up, uh, right about daylight, we got onto this ridge. Really, there was like an excavated building down, and then you go up a little slope. And we jumped into the ditch, which was about neck high, very smooth walls, about two men wide, very well dug, and this was the reverse slope defense they were famous for, but it was the reverse slope defense for the Ishimi Ridge line. Just before sunrise, the company crested Ishimi Ridge. There, Bell discovered a deep trench where Japanese soldiers were sleeping. Down a draw and up a hill facing us, were a bunch of, including about five officers, shaking out their coats and drinking coffee and had on long coats so you could recognize them. Bell's company attacked. He ordered sharpshooters to kill a group of Japanese officers. Then he and his men took over the trench and hunkered down for a counterattack. 
It didn't take an hour before the Japs started coming at us from all directions. But anyway, that was Shuri Castle Ridge that we were looking at. Uh, up on the top, I could see the ruins of the castle. And uh, then I had to leave that unit and go back down to where the excavation was behind this little ridge to set up a command post for the company. Before long, the command post was my foxhole. My first sergeant was just over a little ridge dug in on the friendly side. And by, well, this was daylight. By noon the day, that day, we had nobody left in the command post. My radio operator had been killed. The first sergeant had been killed. My orderly, who was my Jeep driver, if I'd had a Jeep, but I didn't, he was killed. I, I was in this little excavation almost alone in my foxhole here. And right over into the mountain was a great big tunnel that you could drive a jeep in it was about 30 feet from me and i was the only one around there so i got four rifles cocked them and loaded them from dead soldiers lying around me and laid them on my parapets i, I knew that they would come charging out of that tunnel fortunately they never did but uh, i just knew they would but at any rate this is the way we held uh, one platoon was in the trench looking over to the front. We had a platoon on the right, a platoon on the left, and a platoon in the rear making a circle, which we finally drew in because we had so few people left after about a day and a half. We were there, well, the first day was May the 17th, and that was my one-year wedding anniversary. And I, I figured if I could live till midnight, I just couldn't stand the thought of my wife getting a telegram that I had been killed on our anniversary. This was terrible thought. Mm. At any rate, I lived through it to midnight, obviously. And the second night was just as bad. We, we consolidated, pulled back in a little bit. We had a, a litter team that came up from my unit. Seventy litters came up and took away our wounded and walking wounded which was a great relief to everybody in the company that the wounded were getting out of there. That was the second night. And then the third night, we had a company from another unit come in to take over and relieve us in our positions. We put them in the same positions we were in, and then we went back. And that night, I gathered 22 people at a Jeep from my company headquarters with donuts and coffee. That was the greatest Jeep I ever saw in my life. So you had taken 200 men up the hill. Well, 200 of my company and an added platoon, about 250 really. And you came back with 22, so the casualty yeah. rate was 90%. Now, they weren't all left up there dead because we had that 70-man right. litter team right. that took a lot of the wounded away. Yeah. And that attrition rate is absolutely incredible. Yeah. Gentlemen, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking to World War II veteran of the Pacific, Ted Bell, journalist Jeff Wilkinson, and film director Wade Sellers. And we're talking about Ted Bell's experiences in the Battle of Okinawa. When you came back down, you talked to your superiors and wanted to know the sacrifice of your unit, had it made any difference? Yeah. The regimental commander called me back to talk to him when I came back the next day. And um, I asked him, I, I told him, I hope this made a big difference to you because I lost a company up there. And I certainly hope it made a difference. And he took me to the map and he said, this holding this line up there allowed the entire division to move in other areas across that battle line. And so that's that's what your company did. They allowed the whole division to move forward through that line, which made me feel better because at least that's how they felt about it. That was important. Your commander recommended you for the Distinguished Service Cross, which you awarded for your valor in yeah. commanding that. But prior to that, you had already received two bronze stars and a silver star, Yeah, which I think testifies to your courage in the Pacific. Mm. 
Now, let's talk about your unit. Have you kept up with any of those fellows over the years? <laughs> when I went, we went to Okinawa, we went back through uh, Los Angeles, and I met the only man I know of that's still alive. I had been communicating with him on the telephone. He found me, and he called me, and as far as we know, there are only the two of us left. We could be wrong, but he... He's got a son that investigates those things, and I feel pretty safe that they haven't found anybody except me and him, and I met him for the first time, this soldier that was up there with me. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was nice, a nice reunion we had. In fact, the, the crew put him on the air, too. Okay. And so he'll be there. All right, let's move now to the present and to Okinawa which is once more Japanese territory has been since the 1970s. And, Jeff, why don't you pick up the story there, how you all arranged this and some of what happened, and then we'll get back to Ted. After Ted finally said yes, and what we've learned is uh, any time we try to get Ted to uh, share a story or or participate in one of these interviews, his first, his first reaction is always no. <laughs> and then we'll ask again, and then he'll say maybe. And then we'll ask a third time, and he'll go, okay. So so once we got there, I think that, that, that Ted was very surprised by how much Okinawa had changed. Okinawa is four hours south by airplane from the Japanese mainland. It's sort of Japan's Hawaii. It's where they go to go to the beach uh, and enjoy a vacation. It's how, how many miles long? Wait, I've forgotten. Sixty-something miles well, uh, long and only eight miles wide, beautiful beaches. And so we thought we were going back to a battlefield, and we ended up at Myrtle Beach. Uh, essentially, it's resort hotels and beaches and malls and, and all developed very nicely. And, Ted, I think you were very surprised by that, weren't you? The buildup was unbelievable, which also disguised anything that I might recognize. Uh, it was so built up, it was unbelievable. But we got there, and we had tremendous support from, from the United States Army. Uh, the, the, the folks there at Torrey Station, which is a, a small military installation there, and there's lots of military installations on Okinawa. And, and just let me stop right, because the 77th was an Army division. And when people think about the war in the Pacific, they always think about the Marines. Uh, it was about half and half. I, I think it was half, about half Marines and about half Army. Yeah. I was with the Marines side by side several times during the Okinawa fight, and I, I wouldn't know, but I, I think that's a fair guess, about half and half. Yeah. There were five Army divisions and three Marine divisions, so Ernie Powell was with the Marines when he was killed. No. He wasn't? No, he was with one of our other regimental commanders in the three, okay. 77th. Okay. A, a fellow, Colonel Cal Coolidge, one of these 29-year-old West Point full colonels. And uh, he was he was with him. He stopped and talked to me because I knew him when he was in our regiment. Mm -hmm. He was now in another regiment in the division, and he had this little fellow in the back of him. But he talked and asked me what I saw back, and I said, nothing, anything up there where you came from? Nope, nothing. And that's the way it was. And this little wheezing fellow was Ernie Powell, I found out later. I, I think one of the, the great surprises for Ted on the trip was uh, finding Ernie Powell's memorial that the 77th put up, right? On Iashima, there's a memorial to him, and we have some pictures of it, yeah. Jeff, you said that, that the military on the island are there, what, a dozen American military installations still on the island? Yeah, and it causes a lot of friction. Uh, there is a lot of military, a lot of Marines, a lot of Air Force, the hotel that Wade and I stayed in. Uh, there was constantly fighter planes going overhead. There, there's huge military installations everywhere. You see chain-link fences and bunkers. It, it's a weird contrast between the beach, being at the beach and vacation land and all these military installations, and there's, there's still a lot of friction. You, you made liaison, obviously, with their public affairs folks, and they helped you. And, and one of the things Ted wanted to do was to go back to that ridge where his unit had been. We had great support from the military. They held a, a very nice ceremony for Ted 
when we arrived at Torrey Station, and a lot of uh, the, the, the commanders from all branches uh, from the different military installations were there. They presented him with a, with a plaque and presented him with a flag. And then there is a museum uh, that the Marines run, which is called the Battle of Okinawa Historical Society. A couple of their guys hit the maps, and as soon as uh, we had called and said we're coming, they they started trying to find where that ridge was that Ted held for three days. And uh, doggone it, they found it. I think one thing to, you know, the couple of guys that Jeff's talking about are two young Marines who were, I think, 19 and 23, maybe. And their enthusiasm find, in finding out that Ted was coming back there was mirrored by everyone else uh, that we ran into during the trip while we were on the different bases. I think we went to four or five for one reason or another that we would go in to have lunch or we would go on base to you know pick up somebody to travel somewhere else. And if we were walking around, every young soldier would come up and ask who Ted was. You know, and I don't know if Ted remembers this because he was just kind of walking through, but I mean, they'd ask one of the people and they and it just seemed that they would put two and two together that here's this gentleman who looks to be, you know, in his late 80s, early 90s, and he's on a military installation. He must have something to do with World War II in Okinawa. And they all wanted to meet him, you know, and, and this happened many, many times. And they are all, you know, well informed and are very respectful of what Ted and other soldiers like him accomplished. Bell found an American military eager to honor him, a returning hero. He's a treasure. And I think too often our young people are losing our history. We're losing the real meaning of sacrifice. And so to have his presence here today, even just for a moment, it sends that message that we need to understand what real sacrifice is. This is an opportunity for our soldiers to connect to some of the soldiers that really wrote the history we continue to, to push on today. The commanders of all 14 U.S. military bases attended... Absolutely unbelievable. You would think they never saw a World War II veteran. It, it was unbelievable how they looked at me as a World War II veteran. And that retreat ceremony, all the commanders were there, and we shook hands. And, uh, of course, I was the oldest one there. They were all on active duty. But it was just unbelievable. Wade, did did you get the moment on film where Ted was at the spot where he had his unit had been? Is that part, is that part of the? Yes, film? I mean, and with Jeff and I, we had a, a lot of discussion. Uh, the main difference between this show and the previous shows is that uh, the other two gentlemen had been back to Europe prior. I mean, in and and multiple times. Uh, Ted had never been back to Okinawa. It'd been sixty eight years. So with Jeff and I talking beforehand, and trying to figure out how to plan this trip. Uh, we knew Ted, really, his only concern was finding Ashimi Ridge and that spot or general area. Um, but there were other things we had to accomplish during during the visit, and we did. And then it all led up to the final day where these two young Marines who had helped um, been scouring these maps, and they were similar maps to what we had before we made the trip, um, they said we found the spot. And we drove, and we had no idea. I mean, the first day we were at Shuri Castle, which is what Ted explained that he had seen beyond the ridge up uh, the slope. He had seen the ruins of the castle. So our first trip was to Shuri Castle and kind of look back Mm -hmm. in reverse and see if— To look down. To look down, and we were up at Shuri Castle looking over the area and saying, does anything look familiar? I mean, is there anything—and it I don't see how it could. I mean, it was just covered with apartments. I mean, there was— foliage and but just everything it was apartments and housing and buildings everywhere but we had a general idea and then on the last day when we went to the area that the two young marines had found for us through you know some happenstance it was a, an open area i mean it, it was, was a park it was a park i mean maybe 100 feet by 60 feet and then we pull up in this little parking lot and we start walking up and you know ted's holding the arm of his son as they go up this hill and as we get Further up the hill, Ted pulls his arm away from his son and runs up to the top. Yeah, I'm hunting for my old CP and all, but I don't know which is the backside of a shimmy over there. This would be the backside. Over there? That way's north. So this would probably be. Yeah. Maybe heading this way. This would be the forward slope. 
And the trench would have been right along here. And starts looking around, and he's saying, I think this is it. I think this is it. It's hard to recognize, but I'm sure that this is the ridge. The reverse slope ditch was there, and we came from this way to take this ridge at night. I couldn't show this at all to any of my troops, so we had to show a lot of confidence. But I didn't think one of us would be alive by noon. The, the way we were in the middle of the Japanese defenses, and they were all around us, all around us. First platoon was dug in around over there. Second platoon dug in here. Third platoon in the back, surrounding this hill for the defenses for the night. Well, I feel uh, remarkable that I ever returned here. It's, uh, it's nice to come back and see it. it Makes me feel better. Now, you also visited, there's a peace memorial, is there not, on Okinawa? Yeah, it's very large. It's not just a memorial. It's, it's a, a vast park. Uh, it has large monuments, but probably one of the most striking things is uh, they have these granite walls, black granite walls. Similar, they they kind of look like the Vietnam War Memorial, except they have the names of all 200,000 people American and Japanese that were killed during the course of the battle or committed suicide. It's quite striking. Ted, did you look for the name of your first sergeant for that? I did. Uh, I found it, and then I found uh, the only other citadel man, two or three classes ahead of me, Frank Vernon. I found his name. He was killed over there. I found uh, the soldiers' names in my company that... uh, I remembered I had just gotten about 90 recruits, and all the officers were recruits that came in with that group just before we went up on the ridge. So I had a pretty green company uh, at that time. And where was your first sergeant from? Was he was he a Southern boy? Is he one of those New no, Yorkers? He, no, he was one of the New Yorkers, but he was an old. He wasn't one of these young first sergeants. He was a middle-aged first sergeant. Unfortunately, one of our tanks way down in the friendly side fired up and hit him. One of our tanks. I've never told this, and I don't. I don't think it's helpful to tell it. But uh, I just hate the thought of they were so unaware of the fact that we were there. I threw a smoke grenade, a colored grenade, and they stopped firing. They knew the Japs don't have those colored grenades. Mm-hmm. So they knew it must be us. At any rate, uh, I found his name and a lot of other names of those of the older soldiers that I had known. Okay. You said General Grimsley had been part of the 77th. Was he with you at Okinawa? He was with me, but he was in the hospital. He, In fact, an old sergeant came by and said, you better get your roommate settle down. He goes places he's not supposed to go, and he's not going home with you if he's not careful. Well, he got two Purple Hearts the next two weeks, so he was in the hospital when I was doing all this. When he got out of the hospital, our regimental commander called him up. He knew our relationship, and he said, I'm, I want you to get together about 70 men out of your company. you got to go up there and rescue your classmates. He was getting ready to come, but somebody else came with the litter team before him. So he never came up there. But uh, he was almost involved (laughs) with what I was doing, but not quite. Now that you have talked about your experiences with your boy, have you sat down with him and and with your your grandchildren and talk about what you did in World War II? No, no. I told them they'd have a film to to give the story sooner or later. So, uh, no, I haven't talked to any of them about it. Uh, One interesting thing that um, some of the interviews, additional interviews that we've conducted afterwards or after the trip with uh, classmates of Ted and friends of his, one of his classmates from the Citadel, they had no idea of the commendations and actions that he received you know, during the war for years afterwards until a reunion. I mean, it just goes to kind of speak to how Ted is a very 
you know, humble person as far as that goes. I think I have seen that. Is he not the most highly decorated Citadel alumnus or, or member of his class? No, he's the most uh, he's the most decorated uh, soldier from World War II from the Citadel. Uh, he got the Distinguished Service Cross, Silver Star, two Bronze Stars. He was actually uh, nominated or whatever they do for the Medal of Honor, but he he didn't receive the Medal of Honor. He dis- received the Distinguished Service Cross. And uh, Colonel Charles Murray was a great friend of his, and Colonel Charles Murray had received the Medal of Honor in Europe. And uh, Ted always kind of jokes with us. He said, yeah, Colonel Murray is a hero first class, and I'm a hero second class. Oh. How about let's just saying a hero? <laughs> no, no class to that. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking about, Ted, the fact that you're going to let the film be the story for your children and and grandchildren. And I've known a number of World War II veterans, some of them fairly closely, family, friends, and what have you. And the fact that you are not telling war stories to the next generation, that's not uncommon at all. And that's one of the things that I think Jeff, you, and and Wade have found in doing this series is that these are stories that are literally coming out for the first time. Yeah, that's the importance of this project, and, and, and I'd just like to personally thank John Rainey and Elaine Freeman and the folks at the ETV Endowment for, for letting us do this. Uh, a lot of these guys, like Ted, uh, didn't talk about it for a long time, but now they, they know their their time on this earth is, is limited, uh, and a lot of times they don't feel comfortable talking to their families or seeking publicity, but we we seem to have the power of persuasion Well, where they will let us come in and let us interview them and and the stories come out cuz i i think they want they want people to know the stories but they don't want to brag and they realize that because it's a, a project of of ETV in the state newspaper then they feel like that's that's uh um a legitimate way to 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 share their stories and to have them have them recorded f- for history Ted you said that you remained in the service and let's just talk a little bit about that your military career after World War 2 well, I had two tours of duty at Fort Benning as an instructor. One of them was, uh, they were all in the tactical department. And uh, the second time I was at Benning was in the battalion committee. And the commandant was the old 3rd Division from Europe, commander, division commander. He was a commandant of the infantry school, and we were just full of his 3rd Division people. And they had awards, people. Charlie Murray was one of them. Uh, this movie star kid, he was he was one of them in the third division. The Audie Murphy. Audie Murphy, yeah. And and they just full of of Fort Benning was the third division, third division, this and that. I was I was uh, a freak being from the Pacific, really. <laughs> and so. Uh, um, but it, but anyway, the, that was two tours there. Had my tours through personnel at Desper at the Pentagon, mm-hmm. and then I had a tour as on the faculty of the Army War College up at Carlisle Barracks. Okay. That's where I retired from, as a matter of fact. And uh, he's leaving out his service in Vietnam and Korea. Yeah, I went to Korea, but right after the war. Okay. And and then I went to Vietnam during the war. In fact, I got there just before Tet. Tet overran people. I was G one of of the army in uh, Vietnam, and I was required to form a unit to go forward to where the Marines were up north, and take over from the Marines. And General Abrams was going to command the unit that goes up there. So I put myself on that unit as G1. Mm-hmm. So I went up with them right right after Tet. So you're talking about going to Hue Quang Tri? Hue Fu Bai. Hue Fu Bai. Hue Fu Bai is where we formed in General Abrams. And there's a story about this. We had a real prissy chief of staff, a general, who said, Now, if the alarm went off and said we're going to be bombed at 1220, 12.20, we're going to be bombed. I don't know how they knew, but they did. And said, you men are grabbing your helmets and running down the hall 
uh, that's very undignified. Now, I want it to stop. Okay, so we started walking down to our dungeon <laughs> when the alarm went off. General Abrams came up. The alarm went off, and I was right outside his door, and he slammed that door open and ran for that tunnel. <laughs> From then on, there's nothing else said about it. <laughs> he ran for that tunnel. Well, and, uh, Wei Fu Bai was, was still there. I was I was there after you. I was in Kong Tree with MACV team. Oh, yeah, yeah. There, So I, I, I knew the combat base at, yeah. at Wei Fu Bai. That, that's what, exactly where we were, yeah, Wei Fu Bai. So you served our country in three wars. I didn't fight in Korea. Well, <laughs> you you went where Uncle Sam sent you. That was not your that was not your call. Yeah. Um, but to have been a young company commander in World War Two, and you you closed it out in in the Pacific again in Vietnam. In the personnel business, I was J J one of of the and became G one of General Abrams' new staff to take over from the Marines up north. For folks out there, the military acronyms J1 is, and G1, those are personnel officers. J1 is at the Army level, USRV, U.S. Army Vietnam, and G1 is at division and brigade level. And when you get down to company level or battalion, you're an S1. <laughs> so, <laughs> And I, I have dumped some of that, too, in my, in my, in, in my, in my career. Gentlemen, we've got a a few minutes left. Let's kind of wrap this up and talk about the film. This is going to be Ted Bell, and it's the Man in the Moment series, and and it will soon be seen on SCETV. Jeff, let's talk about how you all put the film together. You and Wade put the film together. Wade actually puts the film together, although although uh, we we do talk about it a lot. Uh, essentially, we want to tell Ted's story. Uh, we want to do a, a biography, I guess, of Ted, but but not just about Ted. I think one of, one of the main themes that w- that we want to visit is is as you were saying earlier, the Army's contribution in the Pacific, which I think has been overlooked, and that was one of the reasons that Ted agreed to do this. Is that we, within the context of the film, told the story of of the Army in the Pacific, and, and particularly the seventy seventh Infantry Division. So that's part of it, and the uh, the other part will be uh, the, the the personal story of him returning to the battlefield with his son. But uh, Wade, why don't why don't you uh, talk about the, all that a little bit? We titled the series "Man and Moment" because we wanted to focus in Ted being the third gentleman we've profiled in the series. There is one singular moment during their service in World War II that essentially defined their career. I mean, they went all all went on to long distinguished careers in the military. Um, But during that time spent in either Europe or Japan, there was one singular action where they themselves, their personalities, their ability to lead showed itself. And with Ted, his story, you know, to me, it's one of my favorite uh, stories from any of the veterans we've interviewed because it just shows who he is. You know, I mean, he basically commanded his troops uh, in a situation that was nearly impossible. And we want to reflect that in the film. And what he and his band of men did was to make possible the successful Battle of Okinawa. Correct. And there, there are two tiny details that I think Ted left out that are really important to know about him going up that ridge. With the Japanese always moving at night and the uh, soldiers never really taking action at night, it, his outfit was a combination of his unit and two other units, correct? Yeah. And the two other units he had never met or commanded before. They were told to meet at a certain point at night, and he had never seen these men. So they had to coordinate that. And in, in addition, one of their biggest fears, again, moving at night, is they had to cross their own front lines for fear of getting shot. And they were hoping that the communication had gone to the front lines and let their fellow soldiers know that they would be crossing at a certain time because if they didn't know this they would be fired upon like ted said anything that moved tonight you shot to kill it and and uh, when ted told the story you, you really don't get the severity of what they went through uh they went up a, a low ridge with higher hills all around them that were absolutely packed with japanese they were pounded by mortars and artillery constantly 
for three days and three nights, usually not seeing where it was coming from, just huddled down in their in their foxholes, taking it, taking it on the chin, people dying all around him. And they were getting fired on by their own troops as well because their own troops didn't really know they were up there. So essentially they were just hunkered down, getting murdered for three days. And he sat there in his foxhole, and he kept his men together, and he kept his head, and he held until relieved. And that's pretty amazing. That's pretty remarkable. Well, gentlemen, this has been an absolutely incredible conversation. And Ted Bell, I just can't thank you enough being willing to share that with our listeners, Wade Sellers and Jeff Wilkinson, for doing the technical background on this series and helping bring all of this together. It's an important, not just a South Carolina story, it's an important American story. Well, let let me say that Jeff and Wade, their, their ability to organize things is just unbelievable. I was so glad they were in charge of my trip <laughs> since I said I would go. And I didn't realize that without them, it would have been miserable. They are the greatest planners I ever worked with. Well, Ted, they appreciate what you've done and your story and that of your fellow World War II veterans, and they want to make sure that future generations understand that. That's the whole purpose behind South Carolinians in World War II. That's absolutely right. That is true. So, Ted Bell, Jeff Wilkinson, and Wade Sellers, I want to thank you for being with us today on Walter Edgar's Journal. Thank you, Walter. Thank you, Walter. It's been our pleasure. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. What does one say after listening to a story like this? An incredible story, and until recently, a story that had not been told. Ted Bell's story is one that should be passed down and not be forgotten. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Next time on Walter Edgar's Journal, my guest will be historian Blake Gilpin, who is the co-editor of The Selected Letters of William Styron. He has this Flaubert quote over his writing shed that he tries to, uh, you know, be orderly in life so that you can be disorderly in prose, that you can sort of uh, rage against whatever the, the shibboleths are in, uh, in your writing. I think that you can just, on the basis of the topics of his books show how much he embraced controversy or wanted to sort of court controversial topics in order to get to sort of the heart of human experience. Join me for Walter Edgar's Journal, a production of ETV Radio, Friday at noon. Friday at noon.